You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and a big warm welcome to the Null and Void Sports Podcast. It's episode 38. As you already know, you're joining a couple of sports nuts who bring you the week's biggest stories covering a range of sports. And we're joined by a couple of brilliant guests as well tonight from the world of rowing and leisure management. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Well, should we start with cricket? Because I was thinking with the number of resignations and sackings they've had, it's on a par with number 10, isn't it? Yeah, I think the only difference is that number 10 hasn't got a, uh, an Australian in the shape of Justin Langer riding to the rescue over the horizon, um, allegedly. Allegedly, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it started obviously with Chris Silverwood being fired. Then Graham Thorpe, and I can hear lots of people saying, yeah, quite right too. Um, you know, but the fact is that what are you going to do after that? Well, what they've done so far is Paul Collingwood has been appointed temporary coach. Some people think he should be full-time with Andrew Strauss, who's very steady, Eddie there, to guide things through. But the West Indies is literally, the squad is just about to be announced, isn't it? Yeah, so, 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 so Andrew... Sir Andrew Strauss has taken over from Ashley Giles, who took over from Sir Andrew Strauss back in uh, 2016. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he, he's back in as the uh, overall performance director, uh, grand supremo and uh, uh, illustrious leader. And I think that is a great move. I mean, I know he said he doesn't want to do that full time but he did a really good job of that when he was in the role previously um, and took us right to the cusp of uh, the World Cup. He left just before the uh, White Ball World Cup and actually to a really successful test team. So, uh, yeah, I think I think him coming back in hopefully will steady the ship. I think Paul Collingwood is a great appointment as the interim head coach. I really would, you know, Justin Langer having just left the Australian setup because they wouldn't give him a long-term contract. Unbelievable, really, that they wouldn't when he's uh, just won the Ashes for them, 4-0. Before that, they'd won the 2020 World Cup. He's been an unrivaled success, but I think, from what I've heard, there's criticism of him. His style in the dressing room, apparently he's accused of being too intense and too competitive. Now, I've never, ever heard an Australian be called too competitive by other Australians before. It's <laughs> a, a good point. Uh, and he has a, a quite a, a PR bandwagon that surrounds him somewhat. So already social media is gathering stories on the man. But if you're going to beat the Aussies, I guess bring an Aussie in. I guess yeah. you know to do it. So uh, on the other front, we continued as we've been. The under-19s lost in their final against uh, India. And, and they seem to be de- definitely second best to me. And obviously the, the Washes as well. Yeah, the Washes, third uh, and final ODI to say in England were uh, well beaten. I think it was just a, uh, to, to quote a film, a bridge too far for them with this yeah. uh, game. You know, the I think the, the series had gone, the, the Ashes had gone. And I think uh, it, it was a, a game that they, they, sort of, they ran out of steam a bit. Um, unfortunate because they'd been very competitive through the series against a very good Australia side. Just on the, uh, the the changes in the side, the West Indies touring squad has just been announced. Oh, has it? And right. uh, Stuart Broad and James Anderson have both been rested. Right. Uh, I guess that's the subject we'll be coming back to. Uh, <laughs> should we move on to football? I think we should. Uh, FA, FA Cup shocks my team definitely included United uh, and I, I still even though United lost United didn't turn up in the second half and they'd had a very good first half I still can't get my head around the decision that led to the Middlesbrough goal I mean nothing will convince me let it go Elsa let it go <laughs> but anyway moving swiftly on from that <laughs> Nottingham Forest Leicester I thought Nottingham Forest was superb Brilliant. Really played fantastically well. I mean, they, they they looked good. You were saying they looked good against Arsenal. 
yeah, in the previous did. round, yeah. and they 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 really didn't wouldn't have looked out of place playing that sort of game in a Premier League match. No, I mean, there was no doubt about the result, and and, and ironically, Brendan Rodgers is now quoted as one of the next managers to get the boot. I think their next fixture this week is away against Liverpool. Good luck, Brendan. Um, Bournemouth, Boreham Wood. I mean, pff, <laughs> National League team, Boreham Wood. That's the kind of level that I was playing at as a semi-pro. So, you know, how how wonderful is that for them? I think they're Everton in the next round um, to get to the fifth round. And the money, the TV rights, everything mm-hmm. is wonderful for a team like that. So, yeah, plenty of shocks. But I guess that's what makes the FA Cup special. African Cup nations uh, final, uh, Senegal, Egypt. I watched that and it was sort of Sane against Salah um, and Sane came out on top. So that settled that. Rugby Six Nations, do we want to talk about it? No. <laughs> no, not do I. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, let's start with the positives from the weekend. France played absolutely fantastic rugby and, and that sort of French flair really came to the fore. Italy, probably not one of the strongest or best Italy sides that I think we'll see in the history of the Six Nations, but certainly in terms of uh, the way France played, absolutely great. Uh, Ireland beat Wales. Um, Any weekend when Wales lose is a good weekend in my book. Uh, (laughs) Not not in any way biased, no. No, no. ABW, anyone but Wales. Um, so I think Ireland played really well and looked very good. And I, I think this weekend coming up, Ireland-France will be a cracking game. And I think that that will be the one that decides where the trophy goes this year. Murrayfield, Scotland mm. won the Calcutta Cup. Um, yeah. I think, you know, you've got to say Scotland played their best rugby and really dominated the game in that final 20 minutes when it counted. But, um, but, you know, Andy, I know nothing about rugby. You know that. I watched the whole game, but I said to you afterwards, how can you, because the score uh, was 17 minutes to go, I think, was uh, 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 17-10 in our favour, and you mm-hmm. take off the guy that scored all the points, you upset the balance of things, in my opinion, regardless of fitter players coming on and all of that. They were on top, and and Scotland were just holding the line as best they could. How can you turn that round into a spectacular defeat? Uh, I mean, I, I can see where Eddie was going, bringing on the experience of George Ford to try and close out the game. You know, he he's an experienced player, and then Smith, the young bolter that's come through and playing some great rugby. So... Smith had made a few errors in the few minutes beforehand. I actually called it about 90 seconds before Eddie made the change. I said, he'll bring Ford on now for Smith um, because I think Smith's made a few errors. Yeah, I think, you know, we just, we we ran out of momentum. Scotland uh, have got more experience in their ranks. They're probably a year, Eddie, Eddie... Jones has talked about Scotland being maybe a year or two further in their development cycle than England are. Now, whether that's the Eddie Jones press talk or not, I think it showed in the game. That's a game that this England team in 18 months, I think, would hold on to and close out and win. But where Scotland were, they just had that now that savvy to turn the game around and actually win it in that last 17 minutes when they played the better rugby. Um, I cannot see how it wasn't a penalty to England in the last minute, minute and a half with the the scrum going forward and the Scottish scrum disintegrating. But that's what the referee called. um, And that's what you've got to get on with. Yeah. Anyway, as uh, a non-expert, I watched the whole game. I forced myself to do that. Technically, it still does my head in, in lots of ways, but I watched it and that's my opinion. And one or two people in the press have gone along with that as well. Mm. I, I was surprised to, to read. Anyway. You'd have been better uh, off if you were going to watch one game 
this weekend, yeah. you'd be much yeah. better off watching the French <clears throat> game. Uh, I, I think, you know, there, there's a hint for this weekend. Um, I would also say on that that Bruce, uh, our guest last week, who was talking about rugby, right. called it exactly how it was going to play out. I have been in touch with Bruce and asked him to pick five numbers between one and 50 <laughs> and two between one and 20 for this Friday's Euro Millions. So uh, yeah. if, he's, if he's predicting the future that well, we've mm-hmm. got to hope that that continues. Well, if he can predict that England will beat Italy, I'd be delighted. They ought to be able to do that because that's the weekend game. Winter games, Andy. Um, no medals for us. No, um, close. Today, the curling mixed doubles pair lost out to uh, Sweden, Sweden in the bronze yeah. match. They played really well through. They run lucky in the uh, semi-final, but were well beaten by Sweden today. And I think um, one of the best uh, GB performances has been... Uh, Kirsty Muir in the big air downhill yes. coming fifth yes, when yeah. Eileen Gu, the uh, Chinese competitor, uh, won it. Um, all her competitors crashed in the final. She didn't. She then crashed social media in China after her win. Um, you know, that's how popular and how unbelievable it was in terms of people following her and supporting her. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's very few 18-year-olds can say they've crashed social media. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, there's a lot still to come from there. Uh, but if we move, unless you've got any others on the uh, Winter Games, uh, move to uh, contacts. Mike Smith, who's a regular correspondent, says he is an avid navire. And what is what's that? What he means by that is a null and void, a null and void, and he takes listener, the ER from listener, and he's created this new word called a navire. He says it has to be said with a, a French accent. <laughs> so he says, I've been inspired, and as ever with Mike, you never quite know where he's coming from. Uh, I've been inspired by the stories and reading material covered. Atomic Habits was a great read, he said. I have now set a target of competing in the Marathon de Medoc. Involves, <laughs> yeah, quite. You're laughing because I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, involves a marathon on, in the French countryside with a slight twist on the water and food stops. There are 19 all serving wine and local produce. Mike says he'd let himself go over the last year uh, up to 19 stone. He's a big lad. Um, so perfect goal um, to go in a wine marathon, he says. (laughs) And when I read that first off, I thought, is he having me on? So I actually Googled, and yeah, I now know it does actually exist. Yeah, the Marathon du Medoc is is a a very well-known one in the the running community. Uh, I I would tell Mike now that um, it will require some serious training on both fronts. (laughs) So if he's going to undertake that as a challenge, then... Definitely wants to get the miles in the legs, but also wants to get the uh, the the um, ABV in the arms and into the uh, into the, the liver. Yeah, because, because I think uh, if we were getting live reports from him from that marathon, we'd probably better get him earlier rather than later. I think. But anyway, I go along with his navire. I like that, seeing we have a French tone to things, and uh, he he is definitely a navire. Mike Dinsdale is another navire. In response to our superb climbing guest, Night Rainer, it evoked all sorts of memories from Mike. Got up super early, he says, to listen to Nigel. It took me back to 65, 68 period, uh, going to North Wales in the Lake District with my climbing buddy, John Beckett. Too many beers and sleeping in the Morris Minor convertible, uh, <laughs> somewhere near Lamberis Pass. Bloody cold, but hey, he says, I remember the arrival, and this is an interesting one, of PAs. Uh, PAs? He said, uh, incredibly tight-fitting, smooth, rubber-soled pumps, which were put on to walk to the base of the climb, uh, instead of the boots with nails in them, as they were 
or more modern, vibrant souls. Thanks, Mike, for that. Exactly what Null and Void does, in my opinion, which is the stories that are told by our guests evoke memories, not necessarily even of that sport, but in memories for the people listening. And we thank you for that contact. Mm. And you got a contact as well? Uh, yeah, Bruce, that was our guest last week, got in touch to say uh, how much he enjoyed being on the show. And he also said, guys, you've got a great product there. Should be really proud of it and uh, keep up the good work. So uh, we definitely will, Bruce. We've uh, uh, building on from last week with, as Tony said, two great guests this week. And we'll, uh, we'll continue to do that until anyone tells us otherwise. Yeah, keep on going, as they say. What about, get a grip on it, your chance. Yeah, uh, football. I'm going to have a go at the... Uh, the four home nation FAs and also the Irish FA. Uh, they withdrew their joint bid this week for hosting the 2030 World Cup after conducting a feasibility study that highlighted the project was too expensive and didn't guarantee a fast enough return on investment. Well, you might say, well, that's good business and good sense to withdraw their bid when that's what the feasibility has said, that basically it's going to be too expensive. That feasibility study that said that the World Cup bid would be too expensive cost £2.8 million of taxpayer money. The Treasury put it forward, even though the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, or whatever they're calling themselves this week, said that it was a bad idea and a vanity project. They've gone out and spent two put in a time when we're having to make cuts in public purses because of everything that's gone on over the last two years. £2.8 million spent on a study that said the World Cup was too expensive. Well, maybe there should have been a feasibility study into the cost of the feasibility study. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know whether people in the government had had too much sun in the, and wine in the garden parties last summer wow. or whether it had been you know, too, much, too many e-numbers from a, a cake ambush or something like that. But overall, I think that's just ludicrous. When you and I could have sat there over a, a three-pound coffee shop coffee each yeah. and said, 2030 World Cup, mate, think it's worthwhile? Ooh, bit expensive, that, I think. So basically, they could have paid us six quid for two cups of coffee. We'd have been happy to put in our expenses claim and the uh, and, and make sure that was all correct. No dodgy expenses here from Null and Void, unlike other uh, uh, other public bodies. But we could have done that for six pounds, seven pounds, and they spent two point eight million quid on it. So to the English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish, and Irish FAs to the Treasury and the Prime Minister, who've all given this the green light, I would say get a blooming grip. Some of those people are getting used to that, I think. They've had quite a bit of that recently. (laughs) Anyway, okay, good man. I agree with you entirely on that. Now, let's lift the mood. A nice way of doing that is to introduce you to our first guest tonight. He comes from the world of rowing, specifically coastal rowing. Our guest learnt to row whilst at university. Many years later, I moved down to Dorset and 10 years by then of coastal rowing experience, he set up in 2017, the Coastal Rowing Centre in Stillham Bay. I'm delighted to welcome to Null and Void, Bob Cottle. How are you doing, Bob? Very well. Thanks for inviting me on, uh, Tony and Andy. Good to be here. Now, we always like to get it inside the head of the people we're talking to, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, what first appealed to you about learning to row? Because you did that at university, from what you told me. Yeah. Um, when I, well, initially at university, it was, um, I've always loved water. Previously, sort of lots of kayaking as a, as a scout and as a kid, you know. Um, and I played a lot of rugby as well. Um, and initially, the idea was I could sort of play rugby during the winter and row in the summer. Um, so that's how it sort of started. Um, but I was completely hooked with the uh, the rowing side of things. 
uh, I carried on playing sort of rugby when in during the holidays and that sort of stuff. But it's the the level of fitness you get rowing is was just amazing, and it becomes I'll, I'll say a, a drug, but you become addicted to the the level of fitness. Um, and it was great actually when I went back onto the rugby field to play back row with the, with that level of fitness. Um, Forty years ago, um, fitness in rugby wasn't quite the same as it is today. Um, but, uh, well, did you did you have um, a number of coaches who you could look back on over those years and say he was a real inspiration to me, or 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 not? Uh, yes, in fact, there's. Um, uh, a guy that's recently retired from a school near here, a um, guy called Phil Tinsley, who was the guy that actually taught me to row. And I hadn't seen him for about 40 years. And uh, I bumped, well, not bumped into him through a mutual acquaintance. It was arranged. I saw him a, a few weeks ago, just as he was retiring in his last week. And we had a good old chat about times on learning to row and rowing on the time and all that sort of thing. So great times. I mean, was that in the winter as well, Bob? Because uh, I, I was up in Newcastle, and it's not the uh, the warmest water in the tide, even in the summer. So um, in the winter, I can imagine that being fairly horrific. Uh, it was a bit chilly. In fact, Phil, one of Phil's favourite stories was he would go out in the launch, and one day he did like a double outing. So he's out for an hour and a bit, comes back in, goes straight out again. And in those days, you had these uh, jackets that were like material, waxed material jackets. And he'd gone out. And when he came back after two hours or three hours or whatever it was, he was actually frozen. So we had to lift him out of the launch, <laughs> take him, put him in the showers, turn the showers on to defrost his coat. But, um, <laughs> so, yes, it was cold. But, um, you know, all, all the Newcastle lads and lasses still just walking around in a T-shirt, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the difference between rowing, as in the river, I'm near the Thames here, and, yeah. and coastal rowing. At what point did you say coastal rowing is going to be it for me? Was it particularly by the time you moved down to Dorset or well before then? It was, it was, I liked the idea, I wanted to get back into rowing, but with work and other commitments, the ability to commit to the training, I was doing lots of travelling through work. So I just wanted the ability and the flexibility to row when I wanted. And I was looking at boats and options. And I thought, actually, I saw these coastal boats. And I thought that's perfect. I can put it on top of my Land Rover and head to the beach and row whenever I want to. Um, and for as long as I want to and wherever I want to go. So it's that freedom that appealed. Um, and I did that for sort of 10 years. And on a regular basis, people were saying to me, oh, that's a wonderful boat, or where do you go? How's it, what's it all about? And they reminisce about, or oh, when I was at school, I used to do, I row here, row there, whatever. Um, so that, that's what sort of led me into thinking I'll, I'll run a rowing centre, which coincided with um, the opportunity to sell light boats, um, which are sort of coastal boats that I, I use and sell. Um, so... It was, and Studland, if you know it, is a beautiful beach and it's a very special place. Mm. So that was 2017 when you brought all of that together at one time. Yes. I mean, that, that was, did you, you know, did you see any dangers in doing that at all or were you absolutely positive? What, what was the thinking at that time? Yes, this is going to work. I'm going to make it work. Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a wanderer, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I love the ideas. I like to um, work out the route. I'm not a great planner, let's say. So the idea of this is the focus, this is the strategy, a way we go and deliver. Um, if I do that, then about two weeks later, I'm thinking, oh, let's design another strategy and let's come up <laughs> with some other ideas. Um, and there's a line out of a Tolkien poem, or one of the lines is, not all those who wander are lost. And I've um, lived by that most of my life, actually. So, you know, you might want to say, OK, I, know, I want to get to the top of the mountain, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. Um, so you work out the route as you climb, rather than having a fixed route, sticking to it, whether it's right or wrong. Um, so I like to adapt and learn as I go along. And 
you know, if, if you wander, you meet lots of great people along the way that can help you, you can work with them. Um, and I love the idea of cooperating with people, bringing teams together, using your strengths, um, not trying to control or have, you know, do everything because, you know, it's not so much fun. I mean, I, I can certainly equate and associate with that sort of feeling of go where the uh, go where the tides take me uh, type approach, Bob. But then your role as you sort of grew in the sport, you ended up then coaching an England team at a Commonwealth event and becoming the GB team manager at a World Championships. How did that? did that sort of require you to change your approach in terms of the strategy, the planning, things like that? Um, I, I when, when those opportunities came up, I mean, it, it came up really, I'd say being in the right place at the right time. Um, having set up a rowing centre, it, it was the first one in the UK. Um, so it sort of became an easy place for people to come and train and develop and the fact that I have had 10 years coastal rowing plus years of rowing behind me um, it, it gave me a lot of knowledge about how to behave and how to treat a boat on the sea and how to surf the boats and tides and wind and things um, so when I started talking to British rowing initially it was to run the trials at uh, Studland which then quickly came into well actually Bob if you're running the trials um, do you fancy doing the coaching as well? And that, that sort of role evolved. Um, so we then did the Commonwealth event, um, and that was fantastic. There were crews that come over from Barbados, Namibia, South Africa, all over the world. Um, a lot of them had never done any coastal rowing, strangely. They had rowed. So actually, I ended up teaching a lot of those guys and girls some of the basics. Um, and then we raced, and um, a bit like the rugby, Scotland did very well, <laughs> Canada did, and Canada also did very well in the, in the Commonwealth that year. Um, yeah. So, so as, as you develop that, Bob, I mean, clearly having that kind of responsibility, uh, what appeals to me about what I read there, you know, the row for life principles as such, the variety of stuff you've got, is that it seems to me that you are a facilitator. You make possible an environment where people can grow. And you've had world champions that have developed and come to you through there, come back to you through there with their coaches. That yeah. must be a fantastic feeling, Bob. It, it, it is, yeah. And it's, um, I, I have a simple belief that most people, everybody can sort of do things better than I can, if that makes sense. So actually what you want to do is you want to bring these people together, give them a bit of space, give them some ideas, a little bit of direction maybe, but actually what you want to do is draw out and build their own self-confidence. What are the, you know, with river rowing, and I love river rowing, so I'm not being critical, but river rowing is in, the, in one way you could say, you're doing a two kilometer race and it's the same technique every stroke. Um, okay, the rating will change and okay, there's a lot of pain and, you know, mental strength and things. But in coastal rowing, um, every stroke could be different. You know, you're, you're going and you've got to think about the way the wind is blowing, how the tides are changing, how you're going to do the turns. You know, a lot of the times it's a bit like the first corner on a Formula One race. You've got boats everywhere and you've got to be aware, so aware of what's going on all around you. And that, that is very difficult to teach. And it actually comes from, I believe, putting somebody in that space and encouraging them to think about what's going on and then practice and take time. But you, you can't say to somebody, you've got to be more aware. Well, I mean, you, you can. But actually, what you really want to be doing is putting them in those environments and asking them to think about what's going on and encourage them to think, you know, ask them about where's the tide running? What are they going to do? How are we going to go up to the next jump? You know, the next turn and all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I like to create an environment so people can then come, think, 
develop their own skills within that environment. And with that extra skills, I believe they have better understanding. When things get tough, they actually then have, through that understanding, they have more resilience to cope with pressure and the, the difficult circumstances. So rather than thinking, what was I told? What should I do based on what I was told? It's what I, sh what should I do based on my understanding and my feelings of what's happening in the water around me? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And do you think that's what, because I, I noticed in the info you sent us, is it about 30% of the people that you coach who go on to then try and row the Atlantic have not actually rowed before saying they're going to undertake that challenge? So do you think it's that approach that helps them? Um, of, of the people across the Atlantic, I mean, I, I do a small group each year, if you like, um, teaching them to row. And my specialism there is in teaching them how to row efficiently over long distance in terms of using the right muscles and things. Um, but it's 30% of the people that do the, the transatlantic, only 30% have ever rowed before. So it's 70% have never rowed. All right. Um, but, you know, there are other people that are doing it in the coastal boats. But I have crews come down wanting to learn some of the basics. And I get them doing long distance rows um, where they learn to relax and use um, if you're tense and you have tension in your arms, you will tire much quick, more quickly. So it's about learning how to relax and apply the pressure over distance. Um, but um, yeah, the, the guys that, and girls that do the transatlantic, I mean, some fast, fantastic people and uh, it's life changing for all of them. So it's, uh, it's, it's great to what they do. Not for me, but it's great for them. <laughs> but a, a, a coastal rowing could be Olympics 2028? Yes, um, there's uh, was talk about it possibly being in the Paris Olympics. What's happening is in the in river rowing, um, uh, they are removing the lightweight events. So as of, I think it's after Paris, there'll be no more lightweights. And the idea is that we're going to replace the lightweights with coastal rowing. Um, so that, that's the hope. Um, but with a lot of the uh, Olympic sports, you know, you've got skateboarding and snowboarding, and there's lots more of these uh, more sort of urban sports, if you like, where people are, the cameras are getting up close with the, the athletes, um, it's quicker, sharper, faster, more um, attractive to the advertisers. Let me put it that way. Um, so, what would coastal rowing need to need to do, or or how how could it overcome those barriers to become one of the sports in LA in twenty twenty eight? There's there's two possible formats being considered. There's the endurance format, which is rowing over four k, six k courses. And the course is a bit like a sailing course. So in a bay, you'll have a number of boys that you will sort of row around. Um, and then the other format is what are called beach sprints. So you start on the beach, you run down the beach, jump into a boat, you row out 250 meters around the slalom course, straight back, jump out, run up the beach, and it's head-to-head -head racing. So that, that's what I did when I went to China with the GB team. Um, so, um, and it's much quicker. Um, it requires more skills in terms of running skills. And the, when you go through after the heats, it's quarterfinals, semis, finals, and they are, you've got a few minutes rest between each race. Oh, wow. So it's pretty intense. So that's a little bit more like, again, we've talked about the uh, the Australians earlier. I remember being on a beach in Sydney watching their lifeguard crews yeah. do something similar where it was, again, a, a sprint down the beach into the boat and row it out, um, wearing those very weird, like, cloth caps that they wore. <laughs> yes, and dodgy speedos. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was uh, quite a lot of budgie smugglers on show. <laughs> Not from me, I hasten yeah, yeah, to yeah, add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, beach sprints has been inspired by the Australian surf boat. Similar sort of thing. And it's going out through the waves, 
you know, lots of splashing, surfing, boats up in the air and all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, my, my, my speciality is more on the, now anyways, on the endurance side, but um, there's some really good people involved in beach sprints as well. Bob, in terms what seems to me so appealing about the centre you've got down there is you've, you've got world champions mixing with people who are saying, which side of the boat do I get into? You know, uh, And I think that's smashing. But equally also, you're starting to develop the ability to help uh, uh, people with MS, disabilities generally. Is yeah. that something you really would like to grow? Yes. I mean, just very quickly on the people mixing together. I think yeah. because we are on the coast, we have a respect for the sea. We all have that respect. So we, you know, we'll compete hard on the water, but we'll support each other when we're on the land, when we're launching and all the things around that. So safety is very important. Um, with the, um, the disability side, you know, people with MS, my, my brother's got MS, um, which... I initially opened up that, that, that conversation with some rowing clubs. Um, and when I, I've done a few, I'd love to do more, but it's quite re resource intense, actually. Um, mm -hmm. The levels of the safety management are much higher um, because you can't just say to somebody, if you capsize, just jump back in. You know, it, it doesn't work the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I first guys that came down were from Guildford Rowing Club. Um, two guys with MS, took them out in some boats. Um, one of these guys had some wires on his legs linked to some sort of pulse device, and the pulse would come, electric charges making his legs work and all this sort of stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he got into the boat, and this two guys, and we rode up the beach, rode back down. They absolutely loved it. They got out of the boats, and then went for a sort of, not quite skinny dipping, but, you know, close to, let's say. But they were just so positive. The level of enthusiasm from these guys, it just made me, you know, scream. They were absolutely fantastic. It's um, a very humbling experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, two girls came down from a, a Reading or Marlow. Um, one was visually impaired, another girl was in a wheelchair um, and got down to the beach, about to put in the boat, and I sort of said, okay, they had a, their coach with them, they, they could row. And I said to the girl, this girl Sally, I said, how did you get in the boat? She said, well, you just pick me up and chuck me in. Daughter, <laughs> <laughs> what I did. Um, but, um, and they went out and then they came back in and they were just beaming and I just thought you know all the issues they've had in their lives to be able to come smile just deal with this it's inspiring so I'd love to do more of that um, and it's sort of you know step by step we'll build this sort of thing up um, so if there's anybody out there listening to this that wants to come down a row you know you know you're very welcome love to help try and support you if you uh, do have some sort of disabilities? We'll do what we can. So, Bob, on that on that topic, how what's the best way of people getting in touch with you? Not just people potentially with disabilities, but everybody you've talked about, from absolute beginners to people that want to go back to it or yeah. for the first time experience coastal rowing. Yeah. How do they best get hold of you? Um, well, our website is coastalrowing.co.uk, um, and it's email is just bob at coastalrowing.co.uk or my phone number's on there. If you prefer to just pick up the phone and give me a call, absolutely great. Love to talk to you. Um, but very welcome. Well, you know, if you're down at Studland on the beach having a walk, come and uh, give us a chat. And there's a mate of mine just up the, up the beach has just opened up a, a beach sauna. So you can come for a row and then go and have a sauna afterwards. <laughs> You make it sound very attractive, Bob. I'm really impressed with what you've told us tonight. And I know, actually, uh, that some of the people you've mentioned, I'll just mention the Christian names, Dave, Phil, Claire, Jason, are all people who have achieved all sorts of incredible things who yeah. came to you and, and went on from there. And I hope, if you've enjoyed the process tonight, they're people that you might consider that would make nice guests on 
null and void as well. But we really do appreciate anyway the time that you've given us. We'll send you the link and you spread it to whatever network you want. We'd be delighted Thank to you. do that. It's been great talking to you guys. Thank Cheers, you very Bob. Much really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks ever so much, Bob. Take care. Pleasure. Cheers. Bye now. Cheers. Sir. Right. Well, what a guy he is. Absolutely fantastic, Tony. Yeah. And to, to hear his enthusiasm about the sport. And again, you know, um, I think Bob sort of sells himself a bit short there saying uh, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I yeah. think, you know, uh, for someone who's achieved that much um, in the sport, that's a, that's a testament to his ability as a coach, as a uh, a facilitator, as you called it, and helping people really mm. achieve what they want to. No, a brilliant, brilliant guest as ever. And I'm absolutely sure there are going to be people chasing him up on every level that he's talked about tonight. But very, very impressive. Thanks very much, Bob. Now, sometimes it's difficult to say, how can you follow that? Well, I think probably in our senses, we'll go to our second guest. And our second guest is a very successful general manager of the health and fitness and golf centre in Berkshire that I'm a member of, the Maple Durham Club. I've known Mark for a number of months now, but I wanted him to come along and tell Null and Void listeners how he first became involved and what the last couple of years in the business has been like and tell us about the group that he's part of and its aspirations going forward. Welcome, Mark Dixon, to Null and Void. How are you doing, mate? Very well. Thank you so much for having me on. And how do I follow that? But I'll try. Um, <laughs> lovely yes. hearing, lovely hearing that that story around the rowing. It's uh, it's amazing. I mean, you know, somebody who's been involved in health and fitness and sport my entire life, the joy that when it's done so well, the joy it can bring to every avenue of life. So um, uh, I started. Oh, I mean, I've been involved in sport my entire life, but. I suppose my first kind of dig into the industry was at Wellington College uh, in, in Crowfoam where I'd done my work experience and did pretty well and they invited me to work there afterwards at 16. So um, my and my entire career has kind of been mapped out from there. So I went to university and did sport and business, came out of university after spending years student union president and went straight back into the industry um, and haven't really looked back. So it's uh, I'm, I'm quite grateful that having been in it for quite a while that I've, I've kind of worked across all avenues from the operational side, sales side. I did the fitness instructor side off my own back just purely because it was the one side I had actually done myself. And, you know, I think if you want to become a master of a trade, you, you want to learn all the skills that kind of go with it. Uh, Tony's yet to have one of my classes I haven't done yet, but um, I'm sure there'll be a time. Um, we, we need to have a chat before that, Mark, so you can really work him hard in that one. I give Tony <laughs> his credit. He works hard enough. So uh, <laughs> we'll have a chat more on the golf course, I think, Tony. No, I think, I think that, that would be the place place to do it. But so, so in a way, it's surrounded your early life and continued through. But what were the stopping off places? I mean, you went, you obviously got your degree. What was your first stopping off point from there? How did you use that? So, I mean, within my degree, we did some coaching aspects as well. So we actually did squash and football coaching as well. And then after from my degree, it was uh, so I went to Fitness First uh, in Southampton. Um, from there, I moved back from Southampton back to where I live in Wokenham and started working in London um in Maidavell for Living World Group um and then spent eight years with David Lloyd uh, across two sites in Maidenhead and Reading um and then I've worked uh, worked across a few different areas so I've done high-end spa uh within an old Waldorf over in Sion Park um and then spent just over five years working in the 24-hour gym so the actual gym industry has been totally transformed with the impact of uh, 24-hour gyms but I think also health and fitness as a whole has evolved it's evolved with things like sports and uh, and how sports evolved has kind of transcended into that as well um, a great example I can give is something like power plate where you don't know if you remember Bolton Wanderers they're one of the first teams that have power plates lined up 
in their tunnel and they were one of the first football stadiums to have two separate tunnels. You had one for the away team, one for the home team. That kind of evolvement in how products and everything has, you know, has transcended from not just professional sport, but also into day-to-day life. So those children who aspire to be the next footballer, the next rugby player, the next tennis player, the next rower, that, that sort of level of health and fitness and equipment has made its way down, not just from professional, but now into your day-to-day uh, kind of uh, gym and, and health and fitness and industry. So, and seeing that is, you know, from where I've been throughout my life, who's always loved sport, always. And that's probably why I got into the industry is because I've always enjoyed playing sport, whether it's football, whether it's swimming, you know, not loved my rugby, not built for it, um, <laughs> cricket. or So it's, the, the whole industry has evolved. And I think that the 24-hour gym industry as well has 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 boomed. And I think the good thing about it is that there are only so many players within the gym industry and I think the impact that it's had, it's made everybody sit back and think about their product and their offering. And, and actually, it's really about the people delivering excellent service because a 25 kilogram weight weighs the same in one gym as it does the other. Yeah. How do you make the offering better? Well, actually, for me, it's always been you invest in your people. If you invest in the people and you have people who are passionate about delivering quality every single time that's where you evolve and the great thing is at the moment is that uh, there is the industry has transformed in how we look at it in how we offer the product because and again you know 5k is 5k okay well how do we make that 5k more enjoyable how do we twist it how do we turn it you know and that where i work at the moment we've recently just launched uh golf-based group exercise classes because one of the things for me is that you often hear a golfer coming off going, my back hurts, or I'm mm-hmm. a bit sore today. Yeah. You wouldn't go on a 5K run without stretching. But I would say 99% of the golfers I see on a golf course anywhere won't stretch and warm up before they go on and, and walk 6K. And golf's a fantastic sport for calorie burning. It's a community-based sport. But actually, there's a lot more we can do as an industry uh, to help it and to help our members get the best out of it. And the golf classes that we've launched, golf circuits and golf stretch, the feedback's been absolutely wow. fantastic because golf circuits targets the muscle groups that you use mainly during golf. Golf stretch is a great recovery class. And the guys that are delivering it, um, the, I said the feedback we've had on it has been absolutely superb. And, and as that, as those classes um, start to evolve, we'd be putting more on, but also trying to get more and more people into those classes as possible. I think that's a really good move because you're right about golfers as a, a genre, really. They, as a rule, they say, I'm, I'm getting older, so I'm stiffer, so I can't hit the ball as far. And I was talking to a couple, actually in the sauna at the club the other day, and, and they were kind of looking at me and I said, I go to a stretch class once a week. And I've found that has definitely helped my golf swing. I'm not unfit, but the range and flexibility of movements, tightness of my back, my neck and shoulders definitely has been helped over a period of time by holding the stretches, knowing what you're really doing, and then incorporating those into my warm up. So I wholeheartedly agree with you about that and golfers as a group. So you've got a good market there and I'm sure you're getting great successes. And I think, Tony, if you think we had Jane Story on, who was talking about, um, you know, mental side of golf and breathing and relaxing, that becomes harder to do if the muscles are tense and tight through not being warmed up, stretched, relaxed in that way. So, you know, irrespective of how good your mental game is, if physically you haven't got the range of movement, it's going to limit your game. Yeah. Mark, can I say, you know, how long have you been at Maple Durham now? Coming up to 10 months. 10 months, okay. And obviously, well, not obviously, but over the time I've been a member there, I've seen a few general managers. And one of the things that impresses me about you is that the amount of time you spend, and maybe you can put a percentage on it, I don't know, face-to-face with the members, talking to them. And I know that might sound very basic, but it's not always followed through. That, to me, is a great strength of the way you operate. It's 
end of the day, the, the, the there's the, the most important people at that place are the people. It's, you know, if I don't get to see my members and my team on a day-to-day basis, uh, I, I don't get to understand the dynamics of the club and the dynamics of the membership base. I don't get to understand the dynamics of my team. And those two groups of people at the forefront of my thinking at all times. How can I make sure that my membership base is happy? How can I give my team the skill set to make sure that my membership base is happy? I would say on a day-to-day basis, I'm probably working from a kind of front position, probably about 75 to 80% of the day, Hmm. purely because of the fact that I didn't get into the industry to sit in an office. I didn't get into the industry to shy away from people. Because the more I talk to people, the more I get a sense of, you know, you've got someone like yourself who's, who's been a member there for a long time and, and you get to understand the club. And the great thing about the industry is that you could have, and as I said, I've learned this, especially across a lot of the, the big branded clubs, is that you could stick the same product and the same services in one place and you could do it in another town. And you'd have a totally different demographic and, and dynamic to how that place works. So it was key and always is key for me to understand the community. And the community is a big thing at Maple Durham um, on, on, on how they are and how they work. And, and I, I never shy away. And at the end of the day, my title is general manager. That, you know, it's my responsibility, it's my role. And, uh, and I think the getting to know and, and understand the dynamics of a club and on how people view the place. And, 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 and I always am a big believer. People sometimes are really afraid of feedback. Um, and you and I had that conversation just before Christmas. And mm-hmm. I said, look, I've got you know, lots of plans of where we want to go, but I will always talk to people. Don't shy away from feedback because actually sometimes you have to make a mistake to be able to be a success later on. You know, I, I, we, we install a don't be afraid of failure kind of uh, environment. If you want to try something, you know, that's not going to put lives at risk or anything like that. But if you want to try something, try it. Because if you don't try it, how do you know it's not going to succeed? And I think a lot of that is how you've seen the health and fitness industry kind of evolve across the years. You've seen some things work. You've seen some things not work. You've seen some things evolve and you've seen some brands, unfortunately, fall by the wayside. And I've been involved with a couple of companies where they've been bought out because actually the business side hasn't worked and they failed, but they've been bought up, picked up. You know, we, we you know, ask me about the last couple of years. Unfortunately, I mean, the gym industry has been smashed uh, in the last couple of years of the pandemic. Um, you know, we've been lucky uh, where I am because golf um, and that's probably why you've seen golf and tennis numbers surging because it's one of the first few things that's always opened up from from lockdowns. Yeah. Um, and the key now, from a from a golfing point of view, where I am now is actually well, how do we keep that who's people interested in still playing golf? Let's mm. not just make it a fad because it was always the first thing you could do when a lockdown came out. Um, but the the actual industry has taken a real beating over the last few years. Mm. And you're part of a very big group. But uh, and the facilities aren't the same in each of the how many how many have we got 13 14 locations 15 beg your pardon there you go uh, uh, so the facilities aren't the same but you have got a kind of group concept does that actually help you in what you're doing day to day to have that those facilities and that knowledge and experience yeah I mean the great thing is just, again you know I, I'm, I'm like a sponge I love to learn and you've got a lot of very experienced people within the club company who have a lot of experience and a lot of skills and are 41 years old. You, you never stop learning. You know, you know, I, I think the greatest line I ever got told by a manager a while back was, the minute you think you succeed is, the minute is, is the minute your competitor goes ahead of you. So mm. if you stand still, somebody else is going to come up with the next idea to make sure that actually then the next big gym, then the next best group exercise concept, then the next better golf course. So you've got, yeah, I mean, you've got a wealth. I mean, as I said, we're very different to, for example, like the Warwickshire, totally different site, massive site, um, but it's still a golf course. It's still a swimming pool. It's still a gym. You just have to ensure that actually what works for your site, uh, just something might work at the Warwickshire, 
doesn't mean it's going to work at Maple Durham. So you have to invite, and that's and that's part of that kind of getting to know your membership base is actually, what do your members want to see? What is going to keep my members keep coming back in the door? And you know, I also live by the adage of treat every member that actually when they go through the door and they leave, make sure it's, there's no reason for them to never come back. Mm. You know, have they had that service every single time? Good philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I mean. How do you, how do you sort of work with your team to ensure that happens, Mark? What would be some of the uh, the the actual steps you take to really ensure every member gets that quality experience? Um, a lot of it's coaching. I, I don't like the phrase general manager because I don't you know you don't I don't like spending most of my time managing. I prefer leading, and I prefer coaching, and I prefer to coach in the front, which is one of the reasons why. I enjoy being out the front. I'm one of these people that if I see something good at the time, I'm not going to wait. I'll go and tell somebody. On the flip side, actually, if you see something that could be improved, you know, tell them. And it's installing that kind of philosophy that it doesn't matter what you you know. And the one thing we have is that with our name badges, there's no job title. So we don't manage by our hierarchy you know you, you do in concept but we don't manage on a day-to-day basis well that's my job title under my name we don't manage by that we don't lead by that so you know my my team are very much led and they're coached as in it's your name above the door how would you run it if you know if this is your money and your business how would you run it mm. and the more I can, as for me, it's all about leading and coaching them. The more I can educate them, the more I can learn from my peers, but also the more I can learn from them. You know, I've got specialists in specialist areas. You know, I'm an amateur golfer, so I learn from my golf pro and my golf ops. I'm a fit, I'm a qualified fitness instructor. But I've got better fitness instructors at the club, so I'll learn from them. So, you know, it's very much an open forum. It's, it's not dictatorship. It's very much a democracy and... I encourage participation. I encourage my team to provide ideas and that kind of that, you know, don't have a fear of failure, have a fear of not trying. Yeah. And do you, do you think going forward, I mean, your ambitions for Maple Durham, is it competitive within the group? In other words, are you saying, I want to, relatively speaking, although there might be bigger entities there, I want us to be top of our tree. Is that, is that how you look at it or, or not? Always, you've got to have bragging rights when you go to a general manager's meeting. I thought <laughs> <laughs> you might say that. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, don't take the uh, lack of management for not of uh, wanting to be a manager for not wanting to win. But there's, it's, I think for me, I've always said, I mean, you always want, I, I want my club to, to shine and stand out. But, you know, people ask, what's my greatest success within my career? It's always been seeing team members achieve what they want to achieve. If I played a part in somebody getting that qualification, that next career step, that next promotion, that for me is when you know you're doing something right. Because if your team is succeeding, you know that it's, it's because they're doing something correctly. And if, if I'm playing a small part in that, then, you know, that's it's always been the, better, the biggest career satisfaction for me. And if, I, you, I, if you're doing that, Mark then the, the scoreboard will take care of itself in terms of that leaderboard because you're doing all the right things to help those people be successful, which will help the club be successful. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've I've worked by my kind of, it's really cheesy. I, I call it my four pillars of success. Uh, I, it's, it's people, service, standards, finance. And finance is always last because if you don't get the first three right, you're not going to achieve the financial side. You've got to have the right people delivering immaculate service with the best standards. 99 times out of 100, the financial part will arrive. And do you think going forward that the lockdown has taught your industry, you in particular, your group, things that are really going to be exciting that have come out of that? In other words, the positive side of lockdown, if we can call it that. I think so. I think I think the biggest thing that's I think this last two years is probably, I think whether they're coming back to the club, whether they're going to another gym, I think people are now starting to be a lot more conscious about their health. They're being more conscious about fitness, you know, whether it's doing a Joe Wicks workout at home with, with the kids, you know, it's 
And I think we, we, we need to hit a turning point within our country about how we think about health and fitness and how we think about that next step with not just from all generations downwards, but, you know, as somebody who's, a, who's, who's been a key sports person all my life and, and loved that side of, you know, and it's been my, my life for over 20 years from a professional point of view, you've got to start somewhere again where the country needs to look at how we get more and more people looking at that. You know, you've only got to look at the lack of PE lessons, for example, that are not in, the, in schools nowadays. You know, I, I did four or five a week. In, in, you barely get two now. You've got to look at how we encourage as many different groups of people that actually, do you know what? Gyms are not scary places. Leisure centres, health clubs are not scary places. There is a right fit for you somewhere, whether it's, uh, and I think the one thing we do really, really well is we get to understand and know um, our membership base so we can uh, we can recommend what's going to be correct for them what they're going to probably be what they're going to gain most and we talk about the people side and tony you 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 see the guys in the gym yeah. they're so approachable but yeah. also really really knowledgeable and you know sam who's my wellness manager and and his team are just fantastic at getting to understand people's needs which is the reason why the feedback I get on them all the time is just knowledgeable, understanding, but also very empathetic um, to what people are looking to achieve with their lives. Yeah, Mark, you know, people listening to you, you're actually a part of a group, but if people wanted to get in contact with you uh, to follow through some of the things you've been saying there, and I think there's some mighty big lessons mm -hmm. in there, very impressive. And, and obviously, as a member of the club, I'm biased, but I think you're doing a great job. So I'd endorse many, many of the things you've been saying there. But how do they get in contact with you best? Um, easiest way to go is they can come to the club company website uh, and look for Maple Durham. Um, or very simply, they can drop me an email, my work email, which is m.dixon at theclubcompany.com. And it's the Irish way of spelling. It's D-I-C-K-S-O-N. Not, not the high street brand um <laughs> so you know we, you know um, and we're always looking at how we can work you know we've got two fantastic captains charities this year um so you know we, we do a lot of charity work we're always looking to engage with new groups as well you know one of the big things we're at in the moment is we, we've we've massively grown our our junior membership side we're looking to encourage more and more children uh, into into the club. So we've actually launched a children's group exercise timetable. Um, yeah. It's not just arts and crafts. In fact, there isn't any arts and crafts in there. We have rugby tots. We've got football. We've got kickboxing. We've got yoga. We've got tennis. So, you know, really trying to capture children from a young age on actually, do you know what? Sport's great fun. It's a life learning tool. And we offer loads of that at the club. And, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to growing in, in 2022 again. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, and both Bob and Mark tonight for joining us. But thank you, Mark. That's really helpful. And hopefully, well, we'll send you the link so you can send it on to your group, your network. Uh, and I think that makes a very good story for anybody to listen to that doesn't understand the benefits of being part of an organisation like Maple Durham Club. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, enjoyed listening to the... And thank, you, thankfully, you didn't get me involved in the rugby chat because that would have made me angry. <laughs> <laughs> I did think about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> OK, mate, I'll see you at the club soon. Many thanks. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, guys. Um, Bob and, and Mark, uh, I think, made another great episode for Null and Void. Really enjoyed it. Some great input there. And I'm, I'm sure people are scribbling, making notes as they're hearing both our guests tonight. Um, Andy? Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think, you know, both of them have really shown that passion that we always talk about sports people having. And we're lucky to speak with people who love their sport. I mean, I, I was making notes, obviously, you know, that I work in the corporate world with managers and developing managers. I was making notes as Mark was talking, because I think there's lessons there for some of our managers in a non-sporting corporate world yeah. in the way he works with his teams. And again, with Bob, I think, you know, really that 
that energy, that passion that comes through. And certainly, I mean, I was chatting to Bob about doing a lot of walking down in that area. I think I'll, I'll definitely be taking a detour down into Sutherland Bay to, uh, to, to see the guys there. I'm not saying they'll get me in a boat, but <laughs> definitely to, to pay a visit and see, see how they work things down there, I think would be really interesting to do. Yeah, so th- thanks for that, guys, tonight. And that brings uh, our episode to a close. And as usual at this point, I'm saying, if you want to contact us, comment, or get involved in any other way, listen out for the contact details at the end of this podcast. We love bringing these episodes to you. Fantastic guests, great stories in the, in the world that we both love together, sport. And we'll see you at the same time and a place that suits you next week. See you later. Thanks a lot, folks. See you soon. Bye. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.